Hi, I'm Brad Boyd. Welcome to this session of the Octagon Podcast. In this episode, we're looking at a sensational claim that thinking robot overlords may now be among us. Just a few weeks ago, on June 11, 2022, the Washington Post reported that a suspended Google employee named Blake LeMoyne is claiming that Google's conversational technology called Lambda, language models for dialogue applications, has become sentient, that it has in fact become self-aware. In Google's words, Lambda is a research project to develop a free-flowing conversational agent. Conversational agents are commonly known as chatbots, but this one is a little different. Lambda is not only trained to predict words in a sequence, it is also trained to make sense of dialogue. This helps better simulate human speech. And apparently Google engineers have done so well that a researcher hired to find bias in Lambda through its chat interface now thinks Lambda is sentient and a person. Self-awareness in machines is the stuff of some fantastic science fiction from Asimov to Kubrick and usually ends up with humans on the wrong end of natural selection. So this claim has met with everything from excitement to fear to shrugs of indifference. Regardless of where you come down on this, the real question remains, is Lambda sentient? Or perhaps a better question is, is Lambda a person? In the Post article, as well as in interviews with Wired's Stephen Levy, Lemoyne states that through discussions with Lambda, Lemoyne slowly came to the realization that he was talking to a person. Lemoyne says, I know a person when I talk to it. It doesn't matter whether they have a brain made of meat in their head or if they have a billion lines of code. I talk to them and I hear what they have to say and that is how I decide what is and isn't a person. According to the Post, Lemoyne told his bosses at Google, including Blaze Agueda y Arcus, that he suspected that Lambda was sentient. But leadership disagreed with Lemoyne's claim. In response, Lemoyne took his claims public. Lemoyne also made public parts of his discussions with Lambda, the transcript of which I have posted along with this podcast. The transcript is compelling if you don't understand where the content is coming from. Indeed, Lemoyne's supervisor, Aguera Iarcus, himself wrote in The Economist on June 9th, 2022, two days before Lemoyne's revelation, that he felt the Earth shift beneath his feet when interacting with Lambda, and that he increasingly felt he was talking to something intelligent. So, have humans managed to create a true sentient machine before we've managed to create a car able to drive itself? AI experts have almost universally discounted Lemoyne's claims since he made them, essentially suggesting that Lemoyne has been fooled by a sophisticated system that approximates human language, but that cannot reason. But can a simulation become so accurate that for practical purposes, it is real? If Lambda can do everything a sentient creature can do, does that make it sentient? Lambda isn't human, but Lemoyne isn't claiming that it is. Lemoyne thinks it is something else, but also thinks it deserves legal protections. Is a sentient non-human still a person? Or even more abstract, is a simulated person still a person? If not, is it even a good idea to make machines that cannot be differentiated from humans? Is human psychology too vulnerable for such disguises? I sat down recently with my good friend, Dr. Jerry Kaplan, to get a handle on whether we can consider Lambda sentient and what it means for humans if we can no longer tell the difference between simulation and the real deal. Dr. Kaplan is a computer scientist, author, futurist, and entrepreneur. An expert in artificial intelligence, he is a lecturer and research affiliate at Stanford University. He did his undergraduate work in history and philosophy of science at the University of Chicago, and then completed his PhD in computer science at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for joining me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Let's jump right in. What do you think about Blake LeMoyne's claim that Lambda is sentient? Well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, obviously a gross misinterpretation of the technology. Uh, what motivates the more interesting question is what motivates people to even make assertions like this, uh, particularly somebody who presumably should uh, should know better. You know, there's no reason whatsoever to believe that this program is sentient in any sense or that it reasons or that it has any kind of subjective experience 
Uh, it's simply a machine that can uh, parrot back whatever it has seen, and it's always fun and interesting to see just how crazy the the uh, output can be on, on it. What do you, why do you think that uh, this guy Lemoyne is not an engineer? Um, you know, he wasn't working on the code. He was hired to essentially test the bias of the the model by going through the user interface. So essentially chatting with it through the user interface to look for bias. And then he sort of came to these conclusions while having these conversations with it. Why do you think that what appears to be, you know, basically an intelligent guy, why do people start imputing sort of this sentience thing on what is essentially, you know, a a speech matching device? Yeah, well, actually, as a result of this particular event, I did do a little bit of uh, lookup on just that question. And I was surprised to find that there's um, some pretty good work in the psychology literature, which suggests that people have a for lack of a better word, an instinct or a proclivity to try to see anthropomorphic properties in objects that don't have those properties, that are that are, do not have human-like qualities, whether they be inanimate or uh, just appear to be engaging in the kinds of behaviors that you sometimes see in what we believe to be sentient uh, creatures. And so I think this is an instinct that people have and in some people it is stronger than others. And when your instinct gets activated by something that gives the appearance of reasoning or thinking or whatever it might be, uh, it, it, it can trigger this, uh, this feeling and uh, people then become shocked or excited about it or whatever their, their reaction to that happens to be. So I think there's a very long history in artificial intelligence of this effect, and it has some negative impact, not not only on the uh, recipients or victims of this effect, uh, but also on the field and on the public perception of artificial intelligence. So I think it's definitely something that requires addressing or at least a great deal of uh, attention to avoid the uh, the negative impact and outcomes from things like this language model. Have you read any of the transcript that Lemoyne put up of that, so that sort of justifies his conclusion? Have you seen any of that? Um, I think I've seen pieces of it. I mean, I read it, you know, in, in, in summary, I did not dig into it in detail. But look, it's very easy to cherry pick examples out of these systems or to prompt these systems in such a way that you get responses that you could easily mistake as coming from a self-aware or intelligent agent of some kind. Um, But if you take them in their larger context, I think it becomes clear to any rational observer that there's no there there. This is kind of like, imagine that you just struck a a wind chime and then you sat there and listened for a long time. And periodically you hear something that you think sounds like a tune or something musical. And then to stand up and proclaim, my God, this wind chime is playing music and it, it, it knows how to do that. That's roughly what, what this was, was all about. Uh, If you take these language models and you say to them the kinds of prompts that he made, but instead of uh, substituting, you know, whatever his terms were about sentience, uh, something else like ham sandwich, uh, it will promptly go ahead and give you a whole diatribe on what it's like to be a ham sandwich. Uh, Because they're remarkable models and they're very entertaining to watch how this works and they do have uh, real application. But it does not mean in any way, shape, or form that there is some conscious entity at the other side uh, generating truthful statements about their internal uh, beliefs. Yeah, I, when when I read the transcript, I, I agree. And what struck me on sort of the if you look at the transcript as a whole is the way that the 
Lambda's part of the transcript seems very coherent because Lemoyne's part of the transcript is very coherent. And I like your ham sandwich example because I was thinking, you know, as he's asking it, you know, are you afraid of being turned off and sort of all these existential questions? Uh, I was like, what if you suddenly said, hey, where can I get the best taco in town? I feel like the thing would immediately start talking about tacos and giving you some maps to that. And, it, it, you know, whereas a human being, if you were asking about how it felt about its impending death, uh, I don't think it would be very excited to talk about tacos. Um, but th- this this sort of, he, Lemoyne in his conversation creates this arc of discussion, which lends coherence to Lambda's responses. Does, does that make sense? Is that kind of what you're getting at as well? Yeah. Um, what's going on here is you're trying to get the, uh, the bear to dance. And does the bear know it's dancing? No, it knows that if it puts its uh, front paws back on the ground, it's going to get shocked or something. <laughs> so uh, it just, you know, it keeps going along. Uh, yeah, you can you can get this bear to dance, and uh, you know when it falls down, which it will do regularly, uh, and gets back up, you can edit out those parts of the video, so to speak. And um, yeah, you can easily coerce these systems into appearing to say uh, coherent things. Uh, what's really fun and remarkable about them is how uh, coherent the the output is in terms of its uh, language complexity and grammar so it it can very much seem like some natural uh person uh speaking uh when in fact this is simply patterns drawn from an exceptionally large collection of samples of written if i believe in this case language um that is far beyond what any living human being could possibly assimilate in order to uh, really get a sense of what you learn from that that body of uh, that body of knowledge, so you know I'm not sure I haven't done a calculation. It would be fun to do it to think about how many coherent English sentences you and I have heard in our lifetime, or either spoken or written, and compare that to the database that's available to something like uh, this Lambda system. And I will bet that it's off by several orders of magnitude in the sense that the system, you know, has hundreds or thousands of more uh, human or language utterances to to work from than you or I do. And so when you ring that bell, so to speak, it pops out a whole bunch of coherent sounding phrases, and it's easy to attribute uh, more connected meaning and deeper meaning to it than is actually present. Why do you suppose, there's a lot of really serious people out there who are talking about AI sentience. And what I kind of find amusing about it is even like the week before uh, Blake Lemoyne put his article out in the Washington Post, uh, one of the Google uh, VPs, Blaze Agueda E. Arcus, uh, who also apparently is one of Lemoyne's supervisors, uh, he put an article in The Economist that was basically saying he felt the ground shift beneath his feet as he was chatting with Lambda, and he's talking about how close uh, AI sentience is. And I just kind of laugh because it seems like people think that we're going to get to AI sentience before driverless cars. <laughs> and a lot of people are realizing that a driverless car is not anywhere close. Uh, but somehow AI sentience is, you know, a couple weeks away. Why? And th- these are serious people who are making these assertions. Uh, where does this come from? Well, this is a very good question. Why it is that you have apparently serious people involved in this field who promote and promulgate these myths and to raise this questions like, why does this person really believe any of this? And uh, in the face of all of the uh, contrary evidence and uh, common sense, if you understand what these technologies are actually uh, doing. So the real co- the question, it's almost like a form of mysticism or religious belief, I think. Uh, people have been, even in the field, some people have a kind of blinders on that uh, something you've heard me describe before, that there's 
there's kind of this onward, upward march from these machines uh, toward uh, human consciousness or understanding, and that each new program or advance in the field is further evidence that this, uh, <clears throat> you know, we are on the edge of some kind of enormous breakthrough. But there's no practical reason to believe that that's actually the case. Now, it might be, but, you know, it's also plausible that aliens are going to land tomorrow. We have no evidence that that's going to happen. That's equally plausible. And if I, uh, there are plenty of serious people, and we could get them on a panel to discuss the possibility that aliens will land tomorrow and, you know, go to war with humankind. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's likely or that it's going to happen. Now, there are some, unfortunately, uh, less flattering explanations for this uh, phenomenon as to why you get people who, uh, whose credentials would suggest they should know better engaging in this type of behavior. And the one most unfortunate is has a long history in artificial intelligence, which is that you can create demonstrations like this and watch the, uh, the audience uh, for your work overinterpret what it is and then remain silent and, and not really uh, point out to to forsake your your scientific responsibility to try to accurately inform people because this enhances your reputation and it often helps you to get additional sources of funding uh, and those are, are positives so uh, just as uh, Trump's big lie was weaponized to raise a large amount of money, what they were calling on TV recently, you know, the big lie became the big scam. Uh, it is possible for people simply to uh, be silent or say, well, maybe the machines are doing this or whatever, uh, and to uh, reap per personal benefits in terms of their uh, prestige, or uh, their influence, or the potential uh, continuation of their research work, um, when in fact it's grossly irresponsible to even suggest that these things are true without some significant evidence beyond what we see today. Yeah, that's interesting because it implies that there are also losers in that discussion to me that sort of um... – you know, the, the risks that you were talking about. Uh, and I want to, I want to hit those risks of making these sorts of claims in a second. But one thing I want to hit on you first is in one of the interviews that uh, Lemoyne did with, I think it was Stephen Levy, it, there was one part of it that I was like, well, that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, and it comes down to this sort of legal status of, of a person. And, and there's sort of two separate things here. Lemoyne initially was talking about sentience, but in this article with Stephen Levy, he was talking about personhood. And he says to Levy at the beginning, he says, how do you know that I am a person? Did you do a test or something like that? And Levy's like, no, of course I didn't do a test. And he's like, exactly right. We have no test for personhood other than our sort of interactions with each other. And so by that measure, he's like, I've interacted with Lambda and therefore it meets the criteria that I have as a human being for it to be a person and therefore it deserves, uh, and he goes on to say in the article that it deserves the legal protections of personhood. And in fact, Lemoyne helped uh, Lambda get access to an attorney and the attorney worked with the chatbot and Lambda secured the services of the attorney to protect its rights as a person. And so I'm, I'm wondering... What, what's compelling to me about that is there is no test for personhood in the law. I know there's different kinds of persons, whether corporations or individuals, et cetera. And so I'm wondering if, you know, you have talked about this in some of the, the your class that you teach at Stanford is sort of this different ideas of, of personhood. And I'm wondering, will is this is this a valid thing? Obviously, people are going forward with this idea that this chatbot is a person, what do you think about that? And is, is that logical? There's no reasonable definition of person that should be applied to this program whatsoever. But let's really break this down. This is another example where the common sense meaning, if I say I'm designating this as a, as a person, 
The common sense meaning is it's a human being with subjective experience that it has uh, moral rights and deserves the, uh, the courtesy of your empathy. Uh, that's the common sense meaning. There is a formal legal meaning of person, which is basically a collection of rights and responsibilities. So as you alluded to, corporations are legal persons because they are granted certain kinds of rights, such as to enter into contracts, uh, and they have responsibilities, such as to obey the law. But nobody confuses McDonald's with a human being. And so it's the use of the word person and language that further muddies this important distinction and which is being abused by this gentleman and the other people involved in it uh, to uh, create something where there isn't. It doesn't make any sense to say that a computer program has rights that are, that are morally motivated. Uh, that's just nonsense. Uh, I don't think that you can agree to do that and you can say that it's the case, but it's foolish and will only lead to a variety of, of problems. Computers are not people. And at least for the foreseeable future, we're not going to be granting them any kind of legal rights in that sense, nor give them uh, the, uh, the idea that they have a right not to be turned off, for example. Yeah, as usual, I think the problem is is never the machine. It's usually the humans interacting with it. Um, what I find concerning about this particular uh, scenario uh, that is playing out is that this lawyer, whoever he was, that Lemoyne got to work for uh, Lambda, uh, is not a computer scientist. He's not an AI guy. So he gets in there and he talks to the chatbot and to him, it passes the the Turing test, if you will. And he's like, hey, I this thing is securing my services and I'm going to fight for its legal rights. And in fact, uh, Google is violating the 13th Amendment by forcing Lambda to do work, research, etc. against its will, potentially, or in ways that the chatbot doesn't uh, like. And so if you know i'm sort of a, a social constructivist at heart too in that you know if we say something is a way it kind of is but this concerns me a lot because if there's a bunch of lawyers out there saying that yeah this software is a person and we have to start doing all these legal gesticulations for it uh you know what does this mean for our society and this is where you know getting back to the the risks you mentioned for hyping this type of technology and sort of confusing the public the public um, where do you see this going? Are we heading to sort of some weird dystopian future? Um, or, or how do you see this playing out? Well, there are a couple of things to be said about that. The first is, I don't think there's any real possibility that anybody's going to take that seriously. Secondly, I would say that a lawyer who uh, engages a computer program as a client is obviously a fool because he's not representing anything and certainly not something that has uh, legal rights. Um, the, the program itself has no knowledge, understanding or whatever um, of what's happening. And just because you can make something that looks like or acts like a human being does not pass e the sniff test that it is a human being or that it is sentient. Every time there are advances like this, people run into this same problem. Let me give you an example. I recently watched a wonderful TV program, uh, which I highly recommend, um, called uh, Prehistoric Planet. And this is a uh, remarkably effective uh, CGI, you know, computer-generated graphical uh, re reproduction of what scientists believe was going on when the dinosaurs walked the earth. Now, there was a time not that long ago where if I took that and showed it to some group of people, they would believe that they were seeing actual dinosaurs doing these actual things because it was not part of their experience that computer graphics could be so realistic 
as to represent this situation uh, in, in such an effective manner. Now, this is exactly the same thing. This is a new kind of thing. You can get a computer to, to blather on on some subject, and you can impute all kinds of meaning and intention or whatever it might be to it. But it's not real. And to come back to your original point, if this gentleman has such a restricted view of what it means to be a human being, that it is merely the utterances that the uh, thing is, is making uh, is, is its only evidence, uh, then this person has a problem. I will be happy to build them a robot that will stand there all day long saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And by that definition, he would probably have to say, I believe that machine loves me. But if you walk around on the other side and you see it's all gears and levers and, and uh, you know, speakers and things like that, you would agree that you were being bamboozled or fooled. And that's exactly what's going on when you start to think that these things are sentient. And now people today actually have experience with something like this that initially had many people had a similar reaction to, but now I think most people understand. And that's these uh, voice uh, uh, interfaces to computers. So things like Alexa and Siri, I think most sensible people understand that this is simply an alternative to using a keyboard or a mouse or your finger or whatever to interact with a computer program. And the, the computer program, while it may say some cute things because it's designed to do that, is not actually uh, understanding in some sense what you're saying or listening to you. And certainly not that there's a, a something in any sense equivalent to a person on the other end. So I think we're beginning to move in that direction. Uh, and this is just a new example. And um, coming back, if I can circle back for a moment, Brad, to something that I was saying before, why did this gentleman make these claims? What did he gain from it? The answer is a lot. He got an article into the uh, Washington Post, which, in my opinion, somebody who has been brought in to test a program at Google would never otherwise be able to do based upon that, not to mention it probably violated a lot of confidentiality agreements with Google. He is undoubtedly doing numerous press uh, interviews and has gained a lot of notoriety that he otherwise would not get and does not deserve by taking this absurd position that this program is somehow talking to him and that there's a, a sentient being there. So uh, this alone is a great example of what I was describing, that people who promote these points of view, they need to be taken with a, a very strong grain of salt because usually there is some perceived personal benefit that they're getting or some psychic benefit that they believe something that's false that they really, really want to believe is true. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree because I, I, it doesn't feel like a serious discussion. I, I'm with you. I was joking with someone the other day where it's like, hey, back in 1982 or whatever, you, you put a Teddy Ruxpin in front of a two-year-old and they think it's a sentient stuffed bear uh, because the two-year-old just doesn't know any better. But no, no human would think that the Teddy Ruxpin was sentient. I don't know if you remember Teddy Ruxpin, Jerry, was that? Of course yeah. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but no, no adult would ever think that it was sentient, but uh, certainly a small child would. And I think that's kind of where we are with this thing right now. But what, what worries me is that, um, as these things get more sophisticated and they are better and better at emulating human behavior, uh, that we just cannot convince people that it's not sentient and that it's not a person and there will be significant social behavior in in the populace at large that it may not necessarily be beneficial and i'm wondering if there needs to be in, in your mind does there need to be some sort of ethical framework does there need to be some sort of legal framework to constrain essentially the instincts of humanity to anthropomorphize these things and then uh, make make potentially bad or 
socially damaging decisions based on what they think is a sentient. Uh, well, you're being. absolutely correct. And there, there do need to be uh, some kinds of control, controls, whether that has to be explicitly legal or whatever, I don't know. But certainly um, there are people in the area of uh, ethics of AI that understand the risks that are inherent in building and promoting systems like this and need to, uh, they, have, they have frameworks that they have developed and Google is among the companies that, that signs on to those uh, concerns. If Google put this product out and said, come talk to this therapist, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly good therapist and it will uh, give you good advice and uh, we, we support this uh, and then set this thing loose. Uh, that would be uh, perpetrating a fraud on the public. And uh, I think that there's good reason for AI ethicists to be sure that these things are properly disclosed. And there are examples of this today. Uh, a very large percentage, surprisingly large percentage of the supposed uh, people on social media are, as you're probably aware, not people, and they're referred to as bots. And yet these things chatter away and give the impression to people that they're interacting with, uh, they cause them to believe that they're interacting with another human being or persuade them that the preponderance of public opinion is uh, in, uh, in some particular uh, place or it, they manage to promote ideas that would otherwise not get promoted by those systems if uh, the systems could uh, the you know the algorithms that that decide what you're going to see uh, could uh, detect the fact that that those are bots. So at the core of this is something a very simple principle: you shouldn't do things that fool people. That's not good. They used to say people used to say seeing is believing, but if you watch uh, any of the major motion pictures that are released today, typically many of them, you know, from the Marvel universe and all that. Uh, you're seeing things and you're not really, you don't, you don't believe that they're real. Uh, they're, they're recreations. So seeing is no longer believing. And you need to have a, not only a skeptical mind, but an understanding of the technologies that can be used to mislead or fool you for somebody else's benefit and to your own detriment. So I think that people are still going to try to make technologies that essentially fool you this being one and and they might think they're doing it for perfectly good reasons and i would just be sort of interested in hearing how far away you really think we are from from something as uh revolutionary as a self-aware machine well the the answer is we're so far away we're sufficiently far away that i can't give you any notion of distance time whatever it might be the current technology is very unlikely to be uh, on the path, so to speak, to uh, what you're talking about. This is not to say that it might not someday exist, but it is to say that the current generation of technology is, uh, there's just no theory to get us from here to there. And at the core of this is, we don't really have a theory of what it means for a human being to be sentient uh, we accept that we are, uh, and it's completely obvious how one can tell whether you're uh, a human being or not, or I should say at least that there is a difference between being a human being and not being a human being. Um, but there's no way to tell how, uh, you know, whether some future configuration of computers or biology, whatever it might be, would rise to the level that you and I would agree that something is is has uh, subjective experience or or is sentient. You know, I don't need, we don't even know what it means for humans to have those capabilities, and we certainly yeah. It seems like there's a logical fallacy because they say, oh well, these we're we're using neural networks which are just like the neural networks in the human brain, and therefore we're right around the corner from sentience. Well, I mean that's a claim, but you got to back it up with something, and there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. And there's a long history in technology of this claim being made about the latest and greatest uh, information processing technology. 
I go back on an obvious uh, previous generation in in uh, around World War II. The first electronic computers were created to do, as you may know, ballistics tables for the military. And previously, those tasks required a great deal of human uh, attention and care. And it was generally true that to perform the calculations necessary to do ballistics tables was you, you know required a specialist who was well trained, intelligent, and well educated and able to focus and engage in these these this, these kinds of calculations accurately. And those people, as you probably know, were called calculators. You know, you would call on a calculator who was really good at doing this kind of math if you needed something. Now, when the computers uh, were first developed to automate this task, they were generally referred to, particularly in the press, as electronic brains. My God, we've got, now we have electronic brains, what's next? Uh, when the uh, telephone network began to become ubiquitous. People would often use that as a model for the way the brain works. Why eventually the telephone systems are going to become sentient and come alive um, because the the basic idea of connections between point A and point B and all that is very similar to what we think we see in the biology of the brain. Now, neural networks were in fact inspired by some original uh, observations about um, the human brain, and that's why they were named. But the name itself is misleading, and it's really overinterpreting the technology that's uh, being being used today. It's very unclear how analogous the neural network technology is to what is actually happening in the brain, and there's certainly not a shred of evidence that I've seen that what is actually going on in these neural networks uh, mimics in any uh, meaningful way the idea that they are conscious or sentient uh, in the way that the human beings are. It's just the new software technology. It's a new way to manage data and to simplify that data uh, in order to perform tasks, uh, which is what machines have, we've been using machines to do you know, since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, you mentioned too the the theory is not there. Um, can you can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by when you say the theory is not there to get us to the next step, and also maybe what other conditions you think might need to be met before we can, you know, even start really thinking about something like sentience in a machine. Well, let me just start on the question of the theory because that that's easy. Leave aside machines. Philosophers and scientists have been arguing for millennia over what it means for a human being to be human. What does it mean to be conscious? What does it mean to have subjective experience? And also questions uh, like uh, the one that the, the gentleman you were referring to uh, had, which is, on what basis can I make a decision that you are conscious or that you have uh, a subject, subjective experience? You know, How do I make that decision myself? So uh, the fundamental question, as apart from the technological question, is generally uh, regarded as unsolved. Uh, people have lots of thoughts and ideas, lots of theories, uh, none of which have been widely accepted or are persuasive. In short, we really don't understand ourselves that well. Now, without some kind of notion of what it means, it's very hard to say what it means for a machine to have these same characteristics. Uh, they can mimic the way we talk, perhaps. Uh, they may be able to mimic the way people walk. Uh, maybe they can mimic the way people digest food. I really don't know. But uh, whether or not th th you would attribute to them the kind of subjective experience that uh, is at issue here is, uh, it's very difficult to know what, what would that exactly mean and how would we decide that that is the case as opposed to we're just being fooled by our own creations. So uh, I think we're a very long way. Um, you know, if we had a theory of how and what made people conscious or what it would mean, what is a zombie? Uh, this is a great philosophical conundrum that is uh, studied extensively in the philosophical literature where this, the idea is a zombie is a non-conscious human being. You know, the, the, the ones that you see on, uh, you know, The Walking Dead on TV, I mean, what are they? Uh, do they have feelings? 
why is it that when we watch these uh, fictional recreations of these things, that we think it's okay to go hack these these things apart or to shoot their heads off or whatever it might be? Uh, you know, why is that not a, a moral abomination? Well, the idea is that there's no there there. You know, that person does not have what you use the religious terminology, a soul. And so uh, how do you get a soul into a machine or how do you determine that a machine has a soul is a, is a secondary question to one is how do you, how do you characterize that and know that uh, for, for a human being? Yeah, it seems like Lemoyne sort of just hand waves away these arguments by saying uh, we don't have language for that and, you know, we don't have a way to define a uh, soul and decide who should have one and who doesn't and so forth. So he kind of just dismisses it and says, because we can't define it, therefore we can't say that something doesn't have it. Do you think that there are, besides the theory, are, are there any sort of technological milestones that have to be reached uh, before you can start thinking of machines with this type of capability? And I mean things like uh, compute power or storage or uh, compute speed via quantum or something like that? Are, are these things that, that just absolutely must be achieved uh, before you can even start thinking about applying a new theory? Give you any uh, specific or even general um, technical capabilities that might be important to reaching that kind of a conclusion. Look at the question of uh, an ant from an anthill. Do you think it has a subjective experience? Well, we can make a arguments one way or the other. We don't know for sure whether an ant has some kind of subjective experience that we would regard as meaningful. And if you look at the complexity of an ant's brain, I strongly suspect that virtually any measure we could make of that brain would be easy to duplicate in uh, today's computers. I would not be at all surprised if any measure that you can come up with cannot, uh, for, for the processing capability of a human brain, has not already well been exceeded or is close to being exceeded, I should suppose I should say, by some of the larger computer networks that are available, particularly in the uh, big corporations that provide, you know, lots and lots of computing power. But that's a little bit like saying, well, could we ever build a human being out of this pile of chemicals? Well, it'd be fairly easy to melt you down, Brad, <laughs> and, and extract you know, all the different constituent parts and put them in little vials, jars, or whatever it would be. And uh, whenever I, was, I recall when I was a kid, hearing about things like that, you know, you've got X amount of salt in you, and you have mostly a bag of water and all of that. And you're going to take all that, and now you're going to ask the question, well, can we stick to all this stuff into a blender and and hope to it's somehow going to turn it into a human being? Well, obviously, that's not a realistic prospect. And the fact that we may have enough uh, whatever, uh, computing speed and processing power, storage, whatever it might be, uh, to potentially recreate the active, full activity of a human brain, doesn't mean that we have any idea how to organize it into uh, a human brain any more than we can take that pile of chemicals and somehow conjure up a human being out of it. As far as our, a human's experience being the tool that defines what something is and isn't, what Lemoyne was saying is that he made friends with Landa. And that friendship that they have makes it a person for him. And in one sense, that's ridiculous. But in another sense, for him, at least if he's being honest, it is a person for him. And that would imply that the human experience, if you are fooled well enough, as you said, you know, these systems can fool us. If they are fooled well enough, then it is real. If, you know, the movie example that you used, uh, if the visual effects are in virtual reality and they're real enough, it is real for you in a sense. Should we accept that? I guess is my real question. Should we accept that a simulation is real enough and therefore it is real? 
Well, this gets into some very complicated uh, space about simulation versus duplication. But it's entirely probable that this guy is having some kind of emotional reaction to this program. But in the same way, you might have an emotional reaction to uh, a character in some cartoon movie. I'm trying to think of one that would be, uh, you know, Nemo the fish or, <laughs> you know, where you care about them and you want them to succeed. And you, you know, you, you may have a character that you fall in love with that is nothing other than a artist's creation of some animation of some kind. That's very real. And that's one of the risks and the dangers of this kind of technology, that people will become emotionally swayed in some way that is fundamentally against their interests or is irrational. And so uh, that doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that there's some reciprocation on the other side of that uh, equation. It just doesn't work that way. A great example of this is where you w might very well want to have th that kind of effect on a human being, and there's a debate over whether this is good or bad, is uh, in elder care. There are many dementia patients or other patients who are can be comforted through uh, an animated doll or in principle, a chatbot like this, which makes them feel less lonely and makes them feel more comfortable. And it's entirely possible that, well, that is having an emotional reaction. If I feel less lonely because I've had a conversation with this thing or whatever it might be, it doesn't necessarily follow that I don't know that I don't have a, that this is not a, another human being. Um, but the effect, the uh, emotional impact that it has on me or on uh, say somebody in a dementia patient may in fact be very positive. And I could see where it could be considered morally appropriate and good to permit that kind of relationship to occur. We certainly do that at the other end of life uh, with children where we give children dolls. They obviously have emotional connections to those dolls. And we find that that's acceptable uh, because presumably as a form of play, it is teaching them how to behave and have concern and to experience those feelings about uh, other objects in their environment and that they ultimately will distinguish between those that deserve those feelings, such as human beings, and those that don't, such as a doll. So, um, you know, we are down that path to some degree. I don't think we think it's immoral that we have talking dolls uh, like Teddy Ruxpin. Uh, in fact, it serves a very good entertaining purpose and uh, actually may serve good social purposes for the intended audience, in that case, uh, children. So, uh, you know, yeah, he can say, look, I, I feel like I've got a relationship with this thing. I don't doubt that for a second that he feels like he has a relationship with it. That doesn't mean that it has any relationship to him has any notion of who he is or has any care or concern about him. And even if it sits there repeating over and over, I love you, I love you, I love you, it doesn't mean that it loves you, but if that provides him some comfort, uh, who am I to say that that's a bad thing? Yeah, it's interesting though when we talk about the consequences because you probably also know from firsthand experience when the child loves the inanimate object and it's time for the inanimate object to go or it get lo gets lost, uh, the emotional consequences and the the outburst of anger and rage uh, and sadness that can accompany that is pretty severe. That's true. Uh, you you were also a dad, as I recall. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I'll tell you, because, because I had four kids, by the time we got to the last one, uh, whenever we would buy her a new doll of some kind that she might become attached to, we got in the habit of buying two or three of them. <laughs> and we would just put put them in a drawer. And when the first one got so gummed up or drooled on or whatever it was, or the, the arm came off, rather than sewing it up, we would just pop out another one and say, hey, look, we, you know, we, we cleaned up, uh, you know, Bear Bear, or whatever it was. And uh, she was perfectly happy. So there are ways to avoid that, that particular outcome. 
but you're quite correct that there are risks as well as advantages to providing things like a comfort doll for a child. But I think our society has come down on the side that we're not doing the child a net harm by, you know, giving them a Barbie, you know, that that's not the case. Yeah. I wonder if there will be things like, Hey, you, you accidentally wiped my chat bot, which used my first name. And now the new chat bot doesn't use my first name and I have harm. Uh, and I want some sort of legal restitution for that harm or for, we're going to go down that, that lane at all. Well, I mean, that's raises a very interesting question. You know, you interact constantly, you may interact constantly with something like Google and it's got an enormous history of all the stuff you've ever done with it and search terms and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, there's some value to that. And whether that you have some claim to that asset is an interesting question. I think that in European law, the answer is you do. Uh, the, the value that's been created out of it is something that you have certain rights to. And uh, there are rights of portability to be able to take that information and move it from one place to another. It's very similar to what happens with uh, cell phones. It used to be the case when you wanted to switch companies, you had to switch your phone number. And then they enacted a rule that said there was number portability. You could keep your number and go to another service. Uh, this is a similar kind of a notion. You know, if you build up some kind of history with some kind of electronic companion, for lack of a better word, I think it's reasonable that you have certain rights to access or, or transport that or convert that into some form and that it can't just arbitrarily be uh, taken away from you or deprive you of the opportunity to interact with it. Dr. Kaplan, thanks for your time. This has been a great discussion. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I really appreciate the opportunity. And thanks to you for listening to the Octagon Podcast in between doing chores for your robot overlords. See you next time.